Hello and welcome to Chic, a podcast dedicated to fashion, design, culture, sustainability, media and technology. My name is Kat Sark, I'm the founder of the Canadian Fashion Scholars Network and currently teach fashion studies at the University of Southern Denmark. In each episode, I sit down with experts and specialists in the fields of fashion and design to discuss the most pressing issues of ethics, sustainability and innovation, as well as what they consider the cutting edge of research and development. The 13th episode was recorded remotely with Sandra Neeson, who is the first fashion scholar to point out the need for decolonizing fashion. She's an independent researcher, scholar and organizer based in the Netherlands and a member of the Research Collective for Decolonizing Fashion, the RCDF. That was established in 2012 to disrupt persistent Eurocentric or ethnocentric underpinnings of dominant fashion discourse. I reached out to Sandra last fall when I was organizing my workshops on decolonizing fashion studies and fashion history in Denmark and in Germany. And I was happy to find out that Sandra is also a fellow Canadian. We have since been collaborating on several publications and expanding our networks and opportunities to work together. It has been a pleasure to get to know Sandra and her work, and I feel very honored that she took the time to record this episode with me. Hi, Sandra. Thank you so much for taking the time to record this podcast with me. And I'm really happy to um, have this opportunity to talk to you about decolonizing fashion studies. I just finished teaching a semester of fashion history and fashion theory at the University of Southern Denmark in design and communications. And we have talked about the need to decolonize and have a global perspective on the fashion history, on the fashion industry, on where we are in fashion in terms of both sustainability and ethics. And I always start my courses by referencing the book that you co-edited with Anne-Marie Leshkovich and Carla Jones. The book is called Reorienting Fashion from 2003. And you have an afterword um, that basically, well, I would say changed the world of fashion studies as we know it. The afterword is Reorienting Fashion Theory where you talk about the need for a review and a revision of how we approach fashion studies. So I would like to ask you to please tell us more about you, how you um, started this kind of work and um, what you're working on currently. Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. I'm in awe of your podcast series and all the initiatives that you take to create a more fair fashion system. So it's an honor for me to do a podcast with you. Thank you so much. I'm an anthropologist. I work primarily on the textile tradition of the Batak people of North Sumatra in Indonesia. I did my PhD in Leiden in the Netherlands, coming there from uh, my master's degree at the University of Toronto. And uh, when it was done, I went back to Canada and spent a year at the Museum of Anthropology at UBC in Vancouver. Michael Ames was still the director then, and it was a very exciting and stimulating year in which I got in touch with many uh, Indigenous issues as they relate to ethnographic museums. 
I later took up a position in the Department of Clothing and Textiles. It later became the Department of Human Ecology at the University of Alberta. And that was where I first came in touch with the teaching and study of fashion. I left there at the beginning of the new millennium, and I launched out on my own as a freelance writer and researcher, working in a variety of museums, but primarily on my own projects in North Sumatra, related to encouraging the textile tradition of the Batak people. So I'm curious about how you became interested in anthropology and how that led you to the study of fashion. I remember, I think it was in my first year of anthropology, going into a classroom and coming out of it changed forever. It, I, I don't remember a whole lot about the circumstances of that classroom, which city, which building, which instructor, but I do remember the concept of ethnocentrism that was taught to us brilliantly. I wish I could thank the professor. And what an impact that's had on my life. Maybe it's one of the driving forces uh, for me in continuing as an, as an anthropologist, that desire to learn what is different outside of my own realm of experience. Ethnocentrism is about seeing the world through one's own lens. And we all do that. As cultural beings, we all live in our own bubble with our own way of being in the world and of perceiving the world. And I was interested in learning how to see the world through a different lens, and that's what motivated me as an anthropologist. My PhD was among the Bataks of North Sumatra, and I've always stayed with them, always wanting to go deeper and deeper into the culture, understanding it further and further. You never reach the end of discovery of another culture. At one point, I wanted to understand why they stopped wearing their own indigenous dress and, and adopt Western dress. And so I made a deep historical study uh, entitled Batak Cloth and Clothing, a Dynamic Indonesian Tradition, published in 1993, to try to get a handle on why they would leave their own amazing clothing tradition and adopt the Western one. By the time I came to the University of Alberta's Department of Clothing and Textiles, that was my research background. And that's where I was confronted for the first time with a study of clothing and fashion from a Western perspective. And for me, it was a surprise. It was as though I had stumbled across a whole area of study that had never given any consideration to the concept of ethnocentrism. Fashion likes to present the world as a projection of its own image. For me, teaching in that department of clothing and textiles was simultaneously about learning what fashion studies are from a Western perspective. It was a stimulating time. Culture and film studies were just exploring fashion at the time. But I remember being disappointed with the standard fashion textbooks which I perceived as deeply biased towards a Western perspective of the other. I saw a dress as a universal, which we as anthropologists always learn about what are the human universals and how do uh, individual tribes give a, or cultures give a specific twist to that universality. And I saw the Western system as an accident of history, just as every other tradition of dress. Nevertheless, it's put forward as a special and unique case. 
But of course, so is every other tradition of dress, a special and unique case. When I left the U of A department, that was at uh, the turn of the new millennium, I wrote my critique of the intellectual environment in which I'd found myself, and that was the afterword of a co-edited book entitled Reorienting Fashion. And I called my chapter Reorienting Fashion Theory. I remember feeling very daring when I wrote it, like I was really sticking my neck out, because I was contesting the very fundaments of why fashion, as it was being taught then, was regarded without question as unique and superior, something only found in the West and nowhere else. That was published in 2003, and I thought it was my fashion swan song. And then I got caught up in my other work related to North Sumatra, and I gave it no further thought. I was surprised to learn years later that my writing had resonated and been valued. I developed that critique of fashion further in the West Europe volume of the Berg Encyclopedia of World Dress and Fashion, published in 2010, in my entry entitled Interpreting Civilization Through Dress. And essentially I wanted to show the racist origins of the concept of fashion and how it was trying to prove and demonstrate the superiority of the West. It sounds like we both came to fashion from other disciplines, you from anthropology, and I came from cultural studies and media studies, and we both approach fashion studies very critically. You were one of the first scholars to draw everyone's attention to the need to decolonize fashion studies. So how would you describe to people just starting to study or research fashion why decolonizing the discipline is so important for everyone? This is an interesting question, Kat, because when I wrote my piece on reorienting fashion theory, published in 2003, decolonization wasn't yet an issue in fashion. I certainly called for reform in how, it, how fashion is taught and how it's perceived, but I can't say that I called for decolonization as only later that word became a buzzword. I called for fairness, for recognizing that the accepted definition of fashion divided the world into those who have fashion and those who do not have fashion. And this division didn't bear out with my own anthropological experience. And as I said earlier, my first brush with a clothing tradition was really in North Sumatra. So my starting point never was Western fashion. Now, don't get me wrong, I think it's absolutely legitimate to study Western fashion, to have it as a focus, but I've always felt that it's necessary to put this study in the larger context of dress traditions as these have emerged universally. To put the Western tradition on a pedestal only says something about hubris, a sense of Western superiority, and not about dress traditions. That our Western dress tradition has become dominant in the world has to do with global economics and politics, and that too needs to be recognized and put in perspective. This larger perspective is all the more important at this time when there is general recognition of the ecological footprint of fashion and the fact that fashion is not sustainable and that it's extremely destructive. People everywhere are looking for new ways to relate to their clothes so that they don't just have throwaway items, but things of meaning. And this is when we can learn from all the other clothing traditions that until now have been considered tribal or peasant or non-fashion. 
and therefore disregarded. Another example, we know that the labor pool connected to the fashion industry, the Western fashion industry, has doubled in the last 15 years. This is huge. Where did all these people come from? When we call them laborers or factory workers, we see them only as attached to our system of clothing production. But what about their systems of clothing? We often refer to those systems as craft. We might love them, but we usually don't see them part of the sacrifice zone of our own fashion system. As our own system grows, their systems become obsolete. A truly sustainable fashion is not about better recycling or cradle to cradle or a living wage. That's the focus of sustainable fashion now. But it has to also be about fairness to other people, giving them or allowing them room to practice their own traditions. And that means vastly reducing the size of our own Western tradition and relinquishing its hegemony so that we can give room to other systems, give room to variety. We need students to be examining the relationship between the Western system of dress and other systems of dress in the world because it's that link, that connection, that um, transition that shows a lot about dynamics in dress. To give room would mean fairness. And unless this is recognized by fashion environmentalists, there will be no ecological fairness in Western fashion. It's not just about us. It's about all the cultures in the world. Because I teach young people who will be the next generation of fashion and design experts, I'm always curious and I ask people on this podcast what you think is the most important thing for this new generation of up-and-coming experts um, who will be fashion scholars, researchers, designers, to do differently. So knowing what we know about fashion now, what is it important that we focus on now? I think there's a whole uh, laundry list here of things that we should be doing differently. And in fact, uh, it's critically important to be doing things differently now. I think a lot of different departments of fashion studies are recognizing that and in fact doing really radically different things with fashion study. just mentioned uh, how I think environmentalists should reorient themselves to their task by examining not just the Western system of production and consumption, but also how that impacts others, other uh, cultures in the world. I mentioned the connection between the Western system and other systems of dress in the world. So I don't think that fashion and non-fashion is the great divide, and that's how it's traditionally been perceived. In fact, it's the great connection. What are the reciprocal influences between those who've been perceived to have fashion, those who've been perceived to have non-fashion? And how do those connections continue to morph and continue to be present? What are the reciprocal influences and how do we continue to shape each other? And this all brings me to the issue of politics and dress. Until now, we've tended to look at political issues in dress in the Western fashion system in, uh, in, within the confines of the West. We've looked at triple down, trickle down, trickle up, co-optation, rebellion, 
rebellion in fashion, uh, the use of dress to meet aspirations, to acquire power. But interestingly, when it comes to the connection between Western dress and non-Western systems of dress, it's as though we fail to see the power politics there when they're incredibly important. One of my pet peeves is this notion of world dress. And this was coined a couple of decades ago to recognize that jeans and t-shirts, the, the uh, suits and so on, that have now become common garb throughout the world. That the fact that it's called world dress completely ignores the fact that it has to do with the politics of power in the global arena. It has everything to do with who holds the reins of power and who doesn't and who's aspiring to what. And I think the notion of world dress gives the idea that this just emerges and it fails to see the politics involved in that transition. Similarly, this globalization of fashion, another buzzword also from the last couple of decades, it's as though, oh, look at this, uh, fashion is emerging everywhere. Term and a lot of the study has failed to see this globalization of fashion as an expansion of dominance. Not something that's sui generis, but in fact having to do with shifting power relations. So I think one of the most important things that new generations of fashion scholars, researchers, and so on should do differently is to examine how our dress system is utilized in shifting power relations throughout the world. Another thing that we desperately have to do is rewrite our fashion histories. And it's true, this is uh, something we're already beginning to do. Witness uh, Welters and Lilithun's recent book on fashion history and also Riello and McNeil. Uh, but I think we have to go a lot further in this. And uh, I write, or I mention fashion histories and not fashion history, and I make that plural intentionally. Until now, fashion history is generally paralleled art, hi art history, and it looks at fashion forms, dress forms, from earlier days until the present. Now, if we were to write these histories taking into account world politics, as I was just mentioning, they would be vastly different. And the connections between the Western system of dress, the Western forms of dress, and other forms and systems of dress in the world would immediately become apparent. And we wouldn't see things in isolation. It wouldn't be the Western system of dress in dramatic isolation to the rest of the world. And we shouldn't see it anymore in isolation. Fashion history is not just about the emergence of Western dress forms, but also about how the West relates to the rest of the world, as evidenced in clothing. A facet of this is what do the dynamics in Western clothing have in common with dynamics in dress found elsewhere? What is unique to the West and what is common to the rest of the world? It's time to put our Western clothing systems in universal perspective. And we can do this through fashion history. And going back to the issue of plurality, fashion history is already no longer a matter of design change through time. We can already trace thought changes through time. How is fashion conceived and why is it conceived that way? What are the politics involved in how fashion is conceived? We could examine, for instance, Western hubris as, ex as expressed through dress. We could examine the challenges faced by environmentalists and how we are perceiving dress through their eyes. And this could be placed in a cross-cultural or multicultural context. So this would be about the history of thinking about fashion. Conventional fashion study has been 
outward oriented. It's been about design change through time, designers and their biographies, Western social change is seen through design change. But bringing back the themes of politics and fashion history, uh, the field of fashion studies could become far more self-reflexive. How and why have we perceived and promoted fashion in the way that we have done? What are the impacts of these ways of doing on the rest of the world? Why has it been so hard until now to confront fashion and fashion studies with its ethnocentrism and uh, dominance in the world? We have to look inwardly deeply. Fashion reformers are beginning to do this. We need to do this to get ourselves out of the environmental bind that fashion has put us in. So self-reflexivity is certainly, I think, one of our major tasks as we move forward into the future. I would like to see the whole picture being taught, the larger context. Uh, until now, we've tended to see things in a dichotomized perspective, fashion, non-fashion, we focused on fashion, we've left out half the picture. What if we include the whole picture? What if we get rid of that dualism and instead not focus on fashion, but focus on the phenomenon of dress? For me as an anthropologist, that would be more appealing. Uh, it wouldn't perhaps meet the interests of industry, but I think it would lead to important reform because we're not here to serve industry. We're here to explore a human phenomenon. So how do we change the teaching of dress so that it looks at the whole phenomenon of dress universally and not just the Western form, which keeps us on a pedestal of superiority? I'd like to respond to your comments and your specifically your question about how do we teach the history of dress in a more multidimensional way and not just focus on the Western, select Western examples. So I was hired to teach fashion studies at the University of Southern Denmark, and I found out um, that I got the job in January 2019, so a year and a half ago. So for the last year and a half, I knew that I would be teaching the core courses, which are fashion history, fashion media, and fashion theory. And while I had taught a lot of different media courses, and I've dealt with um, a lot of theory, both from cultural studies and media studies, fashion history was the most daunting one to take on, mostly because every textbook, as you mentioned, um, all the course outlines that I could get my hands on, including the ones that were made available for me from my predecessors, were not adequate. They were not teachable, put it bluntly. And so I spent a year and a half really asking this question, both uh, myself, different colleagues, anyone who would listen, basically. Out of that frustration really also emerged the need to organize different workshops and um, start building a European network after I have already built a Canadian network of fashion scholars to really have a working group to try to start and attempt these challenges and like tackle these questions. What I have done in the course that I just finished teaching last week, the fashion history course, was this very detailed layering of different histories, as you said, kind of plural, with a global perspective, which is based on the paradigm shift. Uh, Linda Walters and Abby Lothan have 
put forth in their book from 2018, Fashion History from a Global Perspective, Global View. And I want to continue having these conversations with other scholars and educators and fashion students and really keep working at it. So putting all these ideas into practice and, and practicing them with students, I'm really curious to see how this cohort, having had this critical approach to fashion, how they will continue into the next courses and how they will approach theory and media as opposed to the previous cohort that I did not teach this critical fashion history to. And so having this comparison, comparative perspective will be quite, quite interesting. Another question I like to ask on this podcast is how would you like to envision the rebuilding of the fashion industry after the coronavirus? Well, there's no time to waste. I don't think that the fashion industry will be rebuilt after the coronavirus. I think that rebuilding needs to start happening during the coronavirus. It gives that pause when we can start rethinking things. And, you know, the uh, RCDF, the Research Collective for Decolonizing Fashion, is all about rethinking. It's all about revisioning. And we don't have any ties to the fashion industry, but what we hope to do is is alter conceptions of how to how to be fashionable, how what fashion is in our world. Uh, we want to get rid of the Eurocentrism and the racism that's built into the fashion system. That kind of rethinking can can happen yesterday. It can happen now. It doesn't have to wait until the coronavirus is finished. In fact, then it's too late. We really hope to get our message across, particularly amongst fashion radicals, fashion revolution, for instance, people who are working on a more environmentally friendly fashion, so that they also work more broadly and without that dichotomy of fashion, non-fashion, implicit in what they do. So you're the co-founder of a network called the Research Collective for Decolonizing Fashion, based in the Netherlands, which is a great resource for fashion and decolonization. Could you please tell us more about how that network came about and what you would like people to take away from it? No, Kat, I'm not a founding member. Angela Janssen deserves all of that credit. She's the one that set it up, and it's her determination that has built it. I joined fairly early on. She put on the first conference in Morocco, realized that to go much further, she would need a group of scholars to assist her in her aims. And so she pulled together a small group of us, all of whom are working cross-culturally and who believe that definition of fashion should be much broader. We have formed a steering group and strategize ways to get our message across most efficiently. First of all, we started off by putting on conferences. They were annual to begin with, but that was so much work we've changed them into biannual conferences. And now we're trying different strategies like parachuting into other conferences or putting on workshops, roundtables, lectures, ways to raise awareness uh, about a new definition of fashion, essentially the things I'm, I've already mentioned, uh, getting rid of that persistent dichotomy, uh, separating those with fashion and those without fashion, and also getting rid of the bias against fashion designers who are non-Western. We continue to strategize. 
we continue to change our definition of who we are. Well, not really change our definition, but change how we approach our work in the hopes that we can get the message out more widely. Indeed, COVID presents a wonderful opportunity because it's a lull. It gives us a chance to regroup. Right now, we're working on a publication for fashion theory about the decolonization of uh, fashion. And we'll see where we go from there. And to conclude, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners? What I'd like to say in conclusion, Kat, is uh, what a pleasure it is to work together with you. What what a wonderful thing you're doing by getting different ideas out there through your podcasts or your networking or your conferences you're putting on, because that's what it's all about. And in that sense, what you're doing and what we are doing is one. We have to get the word out and we have to invite people to join us and let's just be inventive, creative together. People can look for us on the internet. We're at RCD Fashion if they want to find us on the web. And we're also at RCDF on Facebook. People are welcome to write blogs for us, to contribute to our page. It's all about interaction and sharing ideas. So again, thank you for having us or for having me on board to share with you. And it's been a pleasure. As always, here are a few takeaways for listeners from our conversation. Reforming and decolonizing fashion studies is not something that happens overnight or can be accomplished by one person. It is a collective responsibility and we all have to do our part. And we have to do it now because we can't simply carry on as before. It should be a multi-generational and multidisciplinary endeavor where we all help each other learn, teach others, make resources available to further and to mobilize knowledge. Decolonization ethics and sustainability are interconnected and need to be addressed and resolved together. And finally, if you're already working towards decolonizing fashion studies, Get in touch with the existing networks and activists and start collaborative projects because that is the only way to have any kind of progress, first in fashion studies and then in the fashion industry. That's it for the 13th episode of Chic Podcast. I'd like to thank Sandra Neeson for all her work for inspiring younger scholars to make fashion studies more just and for taking the time to record this podcast with me. I'm very much looking forward to many more collaborative projects with her. The music you hear is the second half of Chopin's Prelude in A Major, performed by my very talented friend Matteo Tanzi. Thank you for listening. Please share the link to this episode on your social media channels. You can find me on Instagram under at Canadian Fashion Scholars and until next time.